0: Hello and welcome to Leftist Reading, a podcast from a leftist and I read things. Today we're continuing with Russia and revolution and we're starting a new chapter. The previous one ended with uh, the Bolsheviks seizing power forcibly, and I suspect this next chapter is going to discuss how that goes. Chapter 4 Civil War and Bolshevik Power it was a matter of utmost urgency for the Bolsheviks to show that they were going to take action on all the issues that had alienated workers, soldiers, and peasants from the provisional government. Decrees on the burning issues of peace and land were thus passed by the 2nd Congress on the 26th of October. Footnote 1. That evening, the Bolsheviks formed a government, the Council of People's Commissars. Sovnarkom all of whose fifteen members were Bolsheviks. This was patently at odds with the idea of Soviet power that had been current up to this point, since those who had rallied to the slogan, All Power to the Soviets, envisaged this to mean that the Central Executive Committee of the Soviets, known as VTSIK in its Russian acronym, would form a government of all the socialist parties in the Soviets. It was in protest at the Bolsheviks forming a one-party government that on the 29th of October, the anti-Bolshevik executive of the Railway Workers' Union threatened to call a strike unless talks to form a pan-socialist government got underway. Leading Bolsheviks, led by Kamenev, insisted that the party negotiate in good faith, but Lenin threatened to go to the sailors to scupper what he considered to be a bid on the part of right-wing socialists to play for time. Given that right SRs in Petrograd and Moscow were fighting to overthrow the new regime, this was not an unreasonable consideration. Moreover, the Mensheviks and SRs, by refusing to countenance Lenin or Trotsky as members of a Soviet coalition government, certainly overplayed their hand. Despite this, when negotiations broke down, five Bolsheviks resigned from the Council of People's Commissars on the grounds, as moderate Bolshevik VP Nogin put it, that quote, "we consider a purely Bolshevik government has no choice but to maintain itself by political terror." End quote. Hardliners in all parties, however, bear a measure of responsibility for scuttling the effort to form a democratic socialist government which might have stopped the drift to civil war. In the end, the Bolsheviks did form a coalition government. On the 17th of November, seven left SRs entered the Council of People's Commissars, despite their unhappiness that this body was not clearly accountable to the Soviet CEC, and that the Bolsheviks had closed bourgeois newspapers. Footnote 2. The entry of the left SRs into government allowed the Bolsheviks to claim that theirs was an authentic Soviet government, based on the two parties that represented, respectively, the proletariat and the toiling peasantry. The left SRs would play a decisive role in helping to undermine the all-Russian Soviet of peasant deputies, whose right SR-dominated executive had supported military resistance to the Bolsheviks. Over the next months, the CEC and Council of People's Commissars issued a torrent of decrees and orders on matters as diverse as the eight-hour day, workers' control of production, the abolition of the death penalty at the front, the abolition of social estates and ranks, the rights of the non-Russian peoples, the nationalisation of the banks, the election of army officers, civil marriage, reform of the alphabet and the cancellation of foreign debts. Footnote 3. This served to buttress the image of the government as one that represented rule by the toiling people and that was committed to reorganize social life on the basis of equality and justice. Hopes ran high that the Bolshevik seizure of power was but the prelude to worldwide revolution. These hopes were captured in a manifesto issued by the Moscow Military Revolutionary Committee on the 3rd of November 1917, after it crushed the SR resistance. Quote, Comrades and citizens, the whole world is experiencing a colossal crisis. The war, caused by capital, led to a profound shock that shook the working masses in all countries. Everywhere the revolution of the proletariat is growing." and the great honor has fallen to the Russian working class to be the first to overthrow the rule of the bourgeoisie. For the first time in history, the laboring classes have taken power into their hands, having won freedom by their blood. This is freedom that they will not let fall from their hands. The armed people is guarding the revolution. Footnote 4. Interestingly, this manifesto made no mention of socialism, although that was not uncommon at the time, and it represented the new political order variously as one representing the people, the proletariat, workers, soldiers and peasants, and the toiling classes. This suggests that left SR members of the Military Revolutionary Committee may have had a hand in its composition. Despite much enthusiasm for the new government, it was clear from the first that the Bolsheviks would have to fight to secure the new order. Scholars disagree as to when civil war began, but it seems sensible to see it building up gradually from Kornilov's rebellion and intensifying after what many saw as the illegal seizure of power by the Bolsheviks. Kerensky, who fled to Pskov on the 25th of October, rallied the Cossack general Petro Krasnov to move troops to retake the capital, and these soon took control of Tsarskozelo, some 20 kilometers south of Petrograd. On the 29th of October, students of the Junker, military cadet, schools in the capital rose up in his support, led by the Committee for the Salvation of the Motherland and Revolution, which was dominated by right SRs. In Moscow, the Military Revolutionary Committee declared Soviet power on the 2nd of November, after five days of fierce fighting against the SR-dominated Committee of Public Safety, which had seized the Kremlin and shot several dozen Bolsheviks after they had surrendered. About 350 military revolutionary committees were formed, mainly in the central industrial region, the Urals, and the Volga, most attached to the local Soviet and tasked with defeating the counter-revolution. Though some were set up by Bolsheviks alone, most represented a coalition of left-wing parties, including left SRs, anarchists, Menshevik internationalists, and even the occasional SR. Footnote 5. During November in the Southern Urals and the Don, respectively, Adamans A.I. Dutov and A.M. Keladin summoned their Cossack followers to overthrow Soviet power while far to the east, Soviet forces managed in mid-November to take Irkutsk after fierce skirmishes with Cossacks and army officers. But civil war proper would commence in the Don region of Ukraine, where a volunteer army, comprising officers, cadets, students, and Cossacks, was being formed in Novosherskask under the leadership of generals Alexeev and Kornilov. The first test of the Bolsheviks' popular support came with elections to the Constituent Assembly in November and December. In the preceding months, the Bolsheviks had made political capital out of the fact that the Provisional Government had postponed the elections to the Assembly. Following the October seizure of power, however, Lenin argued that some form of parliamentary democracy would merely serve as a fig leaf for capitalist rule and that a government based on directly elected Soviets was a superior form of democracy. Some Bolsheviks saw no reason why Soviet power should not be combined with a parliament, and they were successful in ensuring that elections to the Constituent Assembly went ahead, optimistic that the coalition, with their new left SR allies, might bring them victory. From the 25th of November, the elections commenced, in some areas dragging on for several months because of lack of telegraph contact with outlying regions, or lack of ballot papers and polling stations. In the Cuban-Cossack region, elections did not take place until the 2nd to 4th of February, by which time civil war was in full swing. According to the full or partial returns for 75 out of 81 electoral districts, including 7 at the front, of 48.4 million valid votes cast, the SRs gained 19.1 million, 39.5%; the Bolsheviks 10.9 million, 22.5%; the Cadets 2.2 million, 4.5%; and the Mensheviks 1.5 million, 3.2%. Footnote six: Among the non-Russian peoples, over seven million voted for non-Russian socialist parties including two-thirds of the population in Ukraine who voted for Ukrainian SRs, Ukrainian Nationalists, or Ukrainian Social Democrats. The SRs were the clear winners, especially when one takes into account the votes for their sister parties in the non-Russian borderlands, but their vote was concentrated in the rural population. The Bolsheviks argued that had their new allies, the left SRs, been able to stand as an independent party, they would have won the lion's share of the SR vote, but it must be said that in the six electoral districts where left SRs did stand on a separate ticket, they did not do particularly well, except in the Baltic fleet. The main supporters of the Bolsheviks were workers, soldiers, and sailors, with 42% of the 5.5 million votes in the armed forces going to the party that had consistently called for an end to the war. In Siberia, The Bolsheviks won only 8.6% of votes, compared with 75% for the SRs, but 55% of votes among soldiers stationed in the garrisons. Footnote 7. This result probably represented the pinnacle of popular support for the Bolsheviks, which would dwindle significantly over the next months. On the 5th of January the constituent assembly opened in dispiriting circumstances, Delayed in part because sailors, soldiers, and red guards fired on a group of demonstrators supporting the assembly, killing 12, including 8 workers from the Obokov artillery plant, and wounding at least 20. A leaflet denounced the demonstrators as enemies of the people. Footnote 8. The longtime SR leader and former minister of agriculture, Viktor Chernov, was elected chair of the assembly by 244 votes against 151 cast for Maria Spiridonova, leader of the left SRs. The delegates then voted by 237 to 146 to discuss the political agenda put forward by the SRs, which prioritized the questions of peace and land, but did not endorse the principle of Soviet power. By the small hours of the morning, the anarchist leader of the Baltic sailors, A.G. Zeleznikov, announced that, the Guard is getting tired, and closed the proceedings. Forever, as it turned out. Realistically, it is hard to believe that the Constituent Assembly could have provided stable government, for political conflict was now immeasurably more inflamed than it had been in summer 1917, and the majority of delegates were not prepared to give way on what was, for the Bolsheviks, the central issue. The abandonment of parliamentary democracy in favour of a dictatorship of the proletariat. The 70% of the peasants who had turned out to vote in the constituent assembly, believing that it would legalise their title to the land, watched its closure with equanimity, confident that the land was now theirs. Footnote 9. The most consequential act of the new government was the promulgation of the peace decree on the 26th of October which called on all the belligerent powers to begin peace talks on the basis of a repudiation of territorial annexations and indemnities and national self-determination. The Bolsheviks then proceeded to publish the secret treaties concluded by the Allies to expose the filthy machinations of imperialist diplomacy. The rejection by the Allies of the peace proposal led the Bolsheviks on the 2nd of December, to sign an armistice with the Central Powers at Brest-Litovsk, and on the 9th of December, they began negotiations with Germany for a separate peace, something they had hitherto rejected. German terms were harsh, and included the detachment of Ukraine, the annexation of the Baltic, and the creation of a rump Polish state. The Bolsheviks played for time. On the 5th of January, the Central Powers issued an ultimatum, demanding the secession to them of all lands currently occupied by Germany and its allies. Lenin insisted that the German ultimatum be accepted, arguing that the Soviets had no means to resist it, and that if they temporized, worse might follow. This provoked what was arguably the deepest split ever inside the Bolshevik party. Bukharin and the left, now organized as the left communist faction, insisted that to capitulate was tantamount to abandoning the struggle to spread the revolution to Germany. From the 17th of January, Trotsky, who favored a policy of demobilizing the army, but of not signing a peace agreement, sought to drag the negotiations out, but on the 28th of January, he withdrew, refusing to sign a treaty. On the 27th of January, the Central Powers signed a separate treaty with the Ukrainian Rada, On the 5th of February, the German high command lost patience, sending 700,000 troops into Ukraine and Russia, where they met virtually no resistance. On the 23rd of February, it proffered terms more draconian than those previously on offer. At the crucial meeting of the Central Committee that evening, the left gained four votes against Lenin's seven, while four supporters of Trotsky's formula of no war, no peace, abstained. Lenin's insistence that the terms be accepted so outraged the left that they briefly discussed with the left SRs the possibility of removing him as head of government and resuming a revolutionary war. On the 3rd of February, the peace treaty was signed at Brest-Litovsk. It was massively punitive. The Baltic provinces, a large part of Belarusia, and the whole of the Ukraine were excised from the former empire with the result that Russia lost one-third of its agriculture and railways, virtually all its oil and cotton production, three-quarters of its coal and iron. The treaty effectively made Germany dominant throughout Eastern and Central Europe, although Lenin's calculation that the treaty would be short-lived proved to be correct, albeit not for the reason – a socialist revolutionary in Germany – on which he banked. Footnote 10. Meanwhile, The Bolsheviks were also facing external pressure from Finland. On the 18th of December, the Soviet government recognized the independence of Finland, confident that the forces of socialist revolution were on the rise in the former Grand Duchy. Following the Declaration of Independence, former Tsarist General C.G.E. Mannerheim incorporated the White Guards into a Finnish White Army, which swung into action against the Red Guards after they seized Helsinki on the 8th of January and declared a Finnish Socialist Workers Republic. For the next four months, Finland was plunged into a vicious civil war. The Kaiser and General Erik Ludendorff settled on a plan to wipe out the Finnish Reds and then march south towards Petrograd, but icy weather delayed General Goltz's expeditionary force until April. Having joined up with the White Guards, however, Goltz inflicted a crushing defeat on the reds, clearing Helsinki of red guards on the 12th to 13th of April and taking the main industrial city of Tampere. The civil war ended on the 15th of May but the killing did not. White terror claimed the lives of more than 5,600 and about 12,500 more would die of famine and disease in prison camps. All this in a country of just 3.1 million people. Footnote eleven: The Finnish War has been rightly called the first of the savage counter-revolutionary campaigns that would open a new chapter in twentieth-century political violence. Footnote twelve: The expansion of Soviets. Despite the insecurity of the new regime, Soviet power advanced during winter 1917 to 1918 across the length of the former empire. Beginning in late November, the Bolsheviks organized a series of echelons, special detachments that traveled along the railways to make contact with the more than 900 Soviets that had come into existence since the February Revolution. Many were in the hands of SRs and Mensheviks who had no inclination to declare Soviet power, and it fell to local garrisons or ad hoc military revolutionary committees to neutralize them. By January 1918, the Bolsheviks could claim to have the allegiance of local governments in most major towns, although support was by no means solid. A host of factors, such as the political coloration of the local Soviet, the vigor of local Bolsheviks, the presence of a garrison or a sizable phalanx of workers, the existence of ethnic divisions, all influenced the ease with which Soviet power was established. In Siberia, Soviet power was carried along the Trans-Siberian railway, and by the beginning of 1918, the overwhelming majority of chairs of town and county Soviets were Bolsheviks, mainly professional revolutionaries who had been exiled there in Tsarist times. Given that workers were few, however, and that 90% of the peasantry in Siberia were independent farmers, here as elsewhere, Bolshevik power remained tenuous. Footnote. In the countryside, Soviets were created at county and township level, often at the instigation of soldiers returning from the front. Hundreds of resolutions from provincial, county, and township Soviets in the Volga region, for example, show that most peasants saw the Soviets as putting power in the hands of the toiling people. In the Urals, support for Soviet power was more uneven. There were 11 counties in Perm province, and in Kamishlovsky County, quote, almost all townships came out for Soviet power and recognized the necessity of merging with the Soviet of Workers' deputies on a proportional basis. End quote. By contrast, in Krasnofimsky County, quote, wealthy people, even Kulaks, have been elected to the township Soviets and have tried by all manner of means to slow down the work of the Soviets. Many time we have had to take repressive measures to reorganize them. With the arrival of the county Red Guard, the local population was terrified, so the Soviet was speedily organized. End quote. Footnote 14. There were very few Soviets at village level, the land redistribution having served to strengthen the traditional village commune, and although the Zemstvos had undergone democratic re-election in summer 1917, There was generally little support for these institutions except among the SRs. Moscow, which became the new capital on the 12th of March 1918, as the German army threatened to take Petrograd, had little control over country and township Soviets, so the latter ignored central government decrees with impunity. On the 2nd of May 1918, the Commissar of Internal Affairs, G.I. Petrovsky, complained that county and township Soviets prefer their local interests to state interests, continuing to confiscate fuel, timber, designated for railways, factories, and works. End quote. Footnote 15. The establishment of Soviet power in the countryside thus intensified the tendency for power to devolve to the lowest level. The triumphal march of Soviet power, once a favorite trope of Soviet historiography, was not a myth, but it proved to be short-lived. By spring 1918, in many provincial Soviets, there was a backlash against the Bolsheviks, which was sometimes due, as in the cities of Kaluga and Bryansk, to the demobilization of the local garrison. More worryingly, the rapid escalation of unemployment and the deterioration of food supply caused many workers, who had imagined that Bolshevik victory would bring an end to their economic woes, to become disillusioned. In Tver, a textile town, the local commissars, especially the left SR, A. Abramov, alienated the populace, not least because of a number of arbitrary killings. On the 26th of March, the Bolsheviks managed to retrieve the situation by removing Abramov, increasing the food ration, and by fierce campaigning against non-party candidates. On the 16th to 17th of April, new elections gave Bolsheviks 67 seats, Mensheviks 31, left SRs 11, non-party candidates 8, and SRs 7. Footnote 16. In Yaroslavl, another textile town, the partial re-election of the Soviet of workers deputies in late April gave Mensheviks 47 places, Bolsheviks and left SRs 38, and the SRs 13 the Bolsheviks promptly dissolved the Soviet and arrested Mensheviks, thereby triggering strikes and leading to the imposition of martial law. Footnote 17. In many provincial capitals, the economic situation led to a revival of the Mensheviks and the SRs, although political disagreements between the two parties meant that they were seldom able to offer effective opposition to the Bolsheviks. New elections to the Moscow Soviet from the 28th of March from the 28th of March to the 10th of April, although marred by malpractice, gave the Mensheviks and SRs only a quarter of the vote. Footnote 18. Elsewhere, the challenge came from the left. In March, SR maximalists gained control of the Samara Provincial Congress of Soviets, and the city of Samara fell under the control of detachments of communards, backed by the garrison, who dispersed the Red Guards. V. V. Kubishev, at this time on the left of the Bolshevik party, brought in military units that replaced the Soviet with a revolutionary committee. Footnote 19. This attests to a more general process that was taking place whereby the loose block of left parties that often cooperated in 1917, comprising left SRs, Menshevik internationalists, anarchists, and Bolsheviks, was splitting apart. The Bolsheviks did not hesitate to reorganize or shut down Soviets that fell under the control of forces they dismissed as petty-bourgeois. Yet the unambiguous assertion of party control over the Soviets was primarily a response to an unnerving international situation and to a worsening food crisis within the country. Early in May, alarms swept through the Bolshevik leadership as the Allies intensified their intervention. Discussed in the next week's section, Civil War. And as the Czech Legion, which had been fighting the Central Powers, rose up in rebellion. On the 10th of May, Lenin recommended that they seek the economic cooperation of Germany as a counter to the Allies. And there was serious consideration of moving the government beyond the Urals. It was in this context of anxiety about the survival of the new regime that the Bolshevik leadership suppressed the Soviets as multi-party organs. On the 29th of May, a Central Committee circular declared, Our party stands at the head of Soviet power. Decrees and measurements of Soviet power emanate from our party. End quote. Footnote 20. On the 14th of June, the Soviet CEC expelled Mensheviks and SRs On the grounds that they were, quote, using all means from shameless slander to conspiracy and armed insurrection, end quote, to destabilize the government. Footnote 21. Henceforward, the function of the CEC would be reduced to ratifying decisions taken by the Council of People's Commissars, which, following the withdrawal of the left SRs in protest at Brest-Litovsk, once again comprised only Bolsheviks despite occasional concessions made to the Socialist opposition during the Civil War, discussed in the section on the Suppression of the Socialist Opposition, the Bolsheviks would henceforth run a one-party state. And that's going to do it for this week. We'll be continuing with this chapter with a lengthy discussion of a Civil War. Uh, But until then, if you have any questions, comments, corrections, suggestions, you can email leftistreading at gmail.com or get the show on twitter at leftistreading. This show is hosted on the Abnormal Mapping Network. You can go to abnormalmapping.com to find this and lots of other leftist podcasts. You can also find them at patreon.com abnormalmapping if you'd like to support the network. I would recommend it. And our intro and outro music is Decisions by Eric Medias. You can go to soundimage.org to find lots of his work there. Thank you for listening, and keep reading.